If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to Matthew. Who knew, right? We're going to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. We're taking a little bit of a break throughout the rest of the year from 2 Samuel. And uh, while Pastor Cody is away, I'm going to be preaching today. Brother Brad's going to be preaching for us next week. I'm excited about that. It's going to be good. I love hearing that brother preach. And then Pastor Cody will be back the next week, all of which preaching from the Gospels. Just neat how sometimes things just happen to work out that way. You know, it's almost like somebody's in charge of it all. Speaking of the one that's in charge of it all, let's look again at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25. And if you are able and willing, would you stand with me as we read the words of the king? <clears throat> Matthew 18, 21 through 35. It says this, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many or how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle accounts, there was one brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, had said, or said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is a treasure. Lord, thank you that you love us and in loving us, you speak to us. You reveal yourself to us and your kingdom. Help us now as we study. Lord, help me to preach rightly as I ought to, to preach the, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ with boldness. 
Lord, that we would not hope in ourselves, but that we would hope in him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today, uh, as we get started, I want us to look at who Matthew is and what his gospel is about as we get started. Matthew, who was uh, formerly known as Levi, the tax collector, was one of the 12, right? He was one of the disciples. He was there for it all. He saw it happen. He was an eyewitness. And he's writing this eyewitness testimony of Jesus to his own people, to the Jews, the people who were looking for this promised one, this Messiah, this Christ who was to come. And so Matthew is writing to them this gospel. Again, what is a gospel? A gospel is a historical narrative with a purpose. So we don't get every detail of, of Jesus's life, just like John said, right? If, if, if I tried to write it all, the world could not contain the, the writings of all that Jesus did and said. So, uh, but what we do have, we can know it truly and we can know Christ truly through them. So Matthew 1, 1, there at the beginning of the book, he says this, and if you were here on Wednesday night, then this is a familiar passage to you, right? Uh, Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, Christos in Greek, the redeeming king, again, that was promised way back in Genesis 3, 15. The one that would come, that would crush the head of the serpent, the one that would, br that would bring redemption to God's people. And so um, Jesus is the one that does that. He is the Messiah that's come. And Matthew is writing to, uh, to the Jews and he's saying, fam, this is, this is the one. This is the one I've been talking about. This is the one that all the Bible, all the Old Testament has been talking about. He is here and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And so as you read, thank you, Bob, as you read, you can hear really these two questions being asked over and over again of who is the king and what is his kingdom like? Who is the king and what is his kingdom like? And Jesus specifically answers these things through a series of five discourses. We're not, we don't have time to go through all those discourses and what they talk about, but sufficient to say that they, they reveal who is the king and what is his kingdom like. Specifically here in, in Matthew 18, we're talking about the beginning of the fourth discourse out of five. And what Jesus is doing is he's unveiling not just who is the king and where is his kingdom, what is his kingdom like, but what is the kingdom community like? which we know by ecclesia in Greek or church, right? What is the church going to be like? Actually, this is one of the first instances where you see Jesus use the word church here in this chapter. And so we see that there. And so let me take you through a quick, quick kind of overview of what Matthew 18 is about, because there is a lot in there. And if we're going to understand this passage right here in 21 through 35, we need to understand the rest of it. So quickly, let's do a, a bird's eye view of chapter 18. The discourse begins in verse 1 where the disciples are doing what? They're arguing, as seems to be a uh, normal mode of operation for them. Uh, they're arguing about who's going to be the best in the kingdom, right? Because what are they looking for? They're looking for a, an earthly political kingdom. 
James and John have already asked Jesus, hey, can we sit on your right hand and your left when you get into your kingdom? You're like, that kind of, and Jesus says, no. <laughs> uh, that's not the way this works. Uh, and so um, I was actually reading today uh, uh, in Bible reading as Jesus is before Pilate. Uh, and he's talking about how his kingdom is not of this world. And, that's, and the disciples still don't get that here in Matthew 18. So what does Jesus do? Jesus takes, the, he goes in the midst of all their arguing, who's the best and greatest and all this kind of thing. And he brings in a child. And he sets this child among them. And he uses this child as an object lesson. And he says, unless you humble yourselves like this child, which by the way, friends, Think about it. How do we enter into this kingdom, right? The, one of the phrases that we use for, for entering into the kingdom is being born again, which means you come in as an infant. You can't do anything, right? What is an infant, what is an infant able to do? Cry, sleep, and fill diapers, right? That's, a, that's, about, that's about it. So everything else, the entirety, Aaron's laughing because he knows it's true. Um, every, everything else a baby needs, needs help for. Completely dependent upon the help of another. And Jesus is saying, unless you humble yourself like this child that knows that it needs help, you can't even enter my kingdom. So that's verses one through four. Then verses five through 10, he talks about how this kingdom, how the king and his kingdom, how they delight. They love to welcome in new kingdom citizens and to nurture them, to grow them up. But how they also guard against those who would, who would seek to not only rebel against the king, but lead these little ones, he starts using the term, these little ones to sin against the king. So we see he's building here about what the kingdom is like in its conduct, what it prizes. It prizes building up the weak and guarding against those who would seek to mislead them. All right. Um, also, we see that, um, that in the midst of that, though, he's, there is hope. For those that, are, those that are in the midst of the kingdom that are in sin or that are leading others to sin, there's still hope. Because we see this, this parable that Jesus teaches of a, a lamb that's gone astray. This is not a lamb that's lost, that was never part of the, the fold, but it's one that's gone astray. And so the, the shepherd, the king, delights in, in going out, searching out and restoring that one that has gone astray back to the fold. Are we seeing a picture here of what's going on, right? For those that, for those that, are, that are welcomed in, nurture them, grow them up. Guard against those who are, who are trying to lead rebellion. For those that do lead rebellion, what happens? They're like sheep in Jesus' mind, right? They're not, they're not like some big threat. No, they're like a sheep that's gone astray. And the king and his kingdom delight to go out and get them, to, to bring them back. And he rejoices over this one that is brought back. And then he goes from teaching this generally, saying it's not my will that any of these little ones of mine should perish. He goes into instructions, specific instructions on how do we go about searching out and, and seeking out the restoration of those who have sinned. Those who are um, holding on, treasuring their sin and are, are being led away from the flock. And what's called church discipline or what I would prefer to call restorative church discipline. Because as Jesus says in verse 15, even in that first encounter, 
right? He says, if you, if you witness someone in sin, like a brother, go to them, show them their sin. And if he hears you, right? This seeking, if it's met with this response of hearing, considering, repenting, and returning, if he hears you, then what? Verse 15 says, you have gained your brother. Rejoice. One that has gone astray has been brought back. Instead, and, and, but what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't hear? Then you keep going after them, right? Bring back two or three witnesses, the biblical standard for making a legal case against someone, not so that they can be punished, but so that they can be restored. So they would see their sin and that they would return. He says, if that doesn't work, then bring in the whole church, Right? Bring in the whole church, not to stare down them here at the pulpit and say, we're, we're upset with you. We're kicking you out. No, we beg them, please come back. Don't cling to this sin. Cling to Christ instead. And if then he doesn't hear, then what happens? Then you treat him as a Pharisee or a tax collector. One who has no evidence of being a believer and therefore has no claim to being a citizen of the kingdom. And ultimately, why? So they would see in their, their disconnection from the kingdom fellowship, from the kingdom community, that it's a picture of that they're really disconnected from the king. That they either need to repent and return or need to repent to be saved. All of this aimed at restoration. And so with that then, if I could say what this entire message this morning would be about in one sentence, it would be this. Our main idea is that every kingdom citizen then must greatly forgive his brother from his heart, having been all the more greatly forgiven by their king. Let me say that again. Every kingdom citizen must greatly forgive his brother from the heart, having been all the more greatly forgiven by their king. All right, so now we have context, right? Now, armed with that context, let's go into what might be considered a bit difficult of a parable. Okay? So, first, I want us to see the question. The question. How many times do I have to forgive my brother in Christ? Does something just sound wrong about that question to begin with? Like, once you know what the rest of Matthew 18 is about, doesn't it, doesn't it just seem a little odd? If not, we'll keep going. Verse 21, look there and you'll see it in your Bible. It says, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Before we go any further, we need to talk about this word to forgive, right? It seems weird to preach on forgiveness and not really define what forgiveness is. You need to forgive. Well, that could mean anything, right? That's, that's a problem. So the original Greek word when used in this context really bears the idea of debt, forgiving debt. It literally it means for a lender to choose an act of the will, to cancel a borrower's financial debt. The discrepancy remains because numbers don't lie, but the, the lender takes the loss upon himself and will no longer hold this against the borrower. In fact, he will treat the borrower as if the debt does not exist. 
I'll just let that percolate back on the back burner for a little while and let's get to the passage itself. So Jesus is using this language, not Jesus, Peter is using this language here to describe sin against or sin from a brother. Now in Jewish culture under the old covenant, interestingly enough, like up to three times was considered good enough. Right? We can see that in Job chapter 33, Amos chapter 1 and 2. Uh, and so there's this kind, of, this kind of reputation of like forgiving somebody up to three times, that's good. Right? The whole forgive me once or uh, fool me once, shame on you. Yeah, you know the rest. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, but really the standard in, in Jewish culture was three. And so Peter already feels like he's kind of hedging his bets here. He wants, he wants so much to be the, the, the teacher's pet here, right? Like up to seven times, right? Seven number of like completion, perfection, seven, right, Jesus? And what does Jesus respond with? Well, depending on which translation you're looking at, if it's New King James or New American Standard, it's 70 times seven, or in ESV or some of the others, they say that it's 77. Either way, this is a shocking answer for Peter, right? Because Jesus has just pulled the greatest switcheroo ever, right? He's taken a, a, a measurable number, seven, and he's replaced it with an immeasurable number, right? Oh, okay, well, 49, that's not bad, right? Have you ever kept track of somebody sinning against you 49 times? That's intense, right? Or you could go, we could go the, the New King James New, New American Standard route and say that it's 490 times. See, the, the thing here is, do you see what Jesus' point is? Someone keeping a record either 78 or 491 times, uh, all these different things, right? This is somebody whose heart's not in the right place. Something is wrong if we're trying to keep record that much. Um, he, this person has a heart problem. And so that's why Jesus now takes his answer and he answers in two different ways. I love this about Jesus. It's said that when, you, and when someone asks you a question, that it's, it's good to think about two things when you answer, both the question itself, obviously, and the questioner, the one that's asking the question. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He answers both the questioner and the question. So what, let's think about that now as we look at number two, answering the questioner that every kingdom citizen has been forgiven an unpayable debt by the king. Jesus has given Peter the, the short answer that he should be willing to forgive his brother 70 times seven. And he says then that, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave the debt. So now let's take a moment and appreciate just how desperate this, this servant's situation is, whom we will affectionately name servant number one. Creativity, right? So, servant number one. So he, just, to, just to get a baseline here, a denarius. 
the servant, the other servant, well, I'll just reveal that creative name later. Um, that, the other servant owes how much? 100 denarii, okay? So one denarius is one day's wages for a laborer, okay? Let's keep that in our mind, okay? A talent, unlike Jean and Martha, um, a talent is, is worth 6,000 of those days wages. The talents are actually worth way more than that. So we love you guys. Uh, so a talent is worth 6,000 days wages. Now, so now servant number one owes how many talents? 10,000 talents. Friends, if you're doing quick math here, that's 60 million days wages. There's no way he can pay this back. You see where I'm going with this? This is every one of us. You may be thinking, well, Justin, okay. <laughs> All right. I, I've done some bad things in my life, but not like 60 million days wages worth, right? Well, the problem with that is that we look, we tend to look at sin by the, the kind of offense that's committed. The Bible tends to look at the, look at the offense in the terms of who it's committed against. You might have heard it said that if, if you sin against a rock, you are not very guilty. You sin against your spouse, you are very guilty. You sin against an infinite God, you are infinitely guilty. And remember that biblical pattern of, of, descri of describing uh, sin as debt? That's the Greek word that Jesus uses in his model prayer. Lord, he says, Lord, uh, Father, forgive us our debts or trespass trespasses but also translated as debts. And so, uh, again, that's the idea. We're looking at this, again, based on the, the sin, the type of sin, but not the one sinned against. And against, and friends, apart from Christ, this is our fate. We deserve, infinitely guilty, deserving to be something far worse than being sold, being put in prison, or being handed over to torturers. We deserve to be thrown into hell for all of eternity under the, under the burning wrath of an infinite, omnipotent God who has all the authority in the world to do it. And, and the, the scary thing in that is if, if the closest description that the English language can give of that place is a lake of, burn, uh, a lake of fire burning sulfur, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. What do we think the reality is going to be like? That terrifies me. And, there's, and just like there's no end to paying back 60 million days wages worth of debt, there is no end to paying back the debt that we owe to God. Imagine it, friends, doomed to suffer a supernatural weight of torment with no hope of escape. This is the destination that, friends, in our own nature... Apart from the redemption that lies in Christ, we are running full tilt in that direction. Every single one of us. Nobody, nobody seeks after God. Nobody does what's right, not even one. And so with that, then praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God, our king in his compassion came and paid our debt himself. He didn't just cancel it, friends. He paid it. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to what? The riches of his grace. 
First Peter 1, 18 through 21, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. He indeed was foreordained from before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, revealed in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Praise God that we, though we had a debt we could not pay, he came and paid a debt he did not owe. He paid our debt in his blood, dying for our sins according to the scriptures, being raised on the third day according to the scriptures, according to the riches of his grace. Praise God for his grace toward us. But in that, we need to remember that this, this freedom that we have now in Christ is not freedom from a king. We still are citizens of a community. We have a ruler and a master that is over us. It just so happens that it is a wonderful ruler and master. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Luke 6.40 Right? It's not just that we, that we just live this life now, I'm going to trust in Jesus, that's good, but that we're going now to grow. Jesus said himself in Luke 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is perfectly or fully trained will be like his teacher. Do you hear that? You are saved for a purpose. Romans 8 says that you were, you were set to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. That is the goal. And as a disciple of King Jesus, then our character will be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So we can't have a different purpose, different loves, different hatreds than Jesus does. We may right now, but it's only because we have, not, we have not been grown by him to that point yet. When millions of years from now in heaven, when we're with him for all of eternity, we will be like him in our character, in our conduct, in what we love and what we hate. So again, we've answered that questioner by remembering what? The gospel. That's what this is. We remember the gospel that every citizen of the kingdom has been brought into the kingdom by the king. And every citizen of the kingdom has been forgiven an unpayable debt by the king himself. So now three, now let's answer the question. Therefore, each of us, each must abundantly forgive his brother's debts from that heart. Remember, that's a, there's a therefore there, right? Because we have been forgiven, we must now forgive and forgive abundantly and from the heart. So now let's apply the gospel to our hearts. So this is where the story changes. Uh, if you remember, uh, remember that servant, servant number one, with that crazy unpayable debt that he was forgiven of? If you hadn't read this question or this story already, what would you have, what would you have thought that he was going to do the moment that he steps out of that door? Was it that he would run to another, to another servant, grab him by the throat and demand money? Because that wasn't what I would have thought of either. 
And yet that's exactly what happens. It says in verse 28, look with, there, look with me in your Bible. It says, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. You see, servant one's life has just been changed in a monstrous way. Right? He, he has, he's in better financial shape than he's ever been in his entire life. And it came from a kindness that he wasn't looking for. Remember back in verse 26, what was his plea that he made to the king? Not forgive my debt, but what? Just give me a little more time. Let me work out the details on my payment plan for my 60 million days wages worth of debt. Right? This is ridiculous. And yet, he receives forgiveness. He should be overwhelmed by the king's generosity. He should be motivated in some way to be able to take this forgiveness that so sweetly his, he has experienced in his heart and give it to somebody else. Namely, the other servant, who we will now affectionately refer to as... Servant two, that's right. See, you know my naming scheme here. All right. Servant one lays hands on him, grabs him by the throat, and demands payment back immediately. To make matters worse, listen to what servant two says, right? He wants patience. Doesn't that sound familiar? Shouldn't that be ringing in the ears of the servant number one? These are the exact words that he uses with the king. The only difference is he calls the king master. That's it. It's the exact same thing. All this, all this one wants is a little more time to pay it back. Now again, a hundred denarii, is, that's, a stout, that's still a stout debt. But it's a payable debt. It's going to take a little while. But he could do it. And yet, servant number one wants nothing to do with that. He wants it now. He wants his money, and he wants it now. And when he can't have it now, he just wants plain old vengeance. He has him thrown into prison where he can repay the debt, which almost guarantees that he's not going to get the payment back, right? Because at least when he was out, what could he do? What could servant number two do? Work. I don't know, do something to receive money with which to pay back said loan, right? And, and yet now, this is exactly, so he's not interested in money now. It's just plain old vengeance, plain old revenge. And he's going to be, he's willing to be harsher than a king who had every right to be as king would have done. In fact, look with me at verse 32. It says, The master, when after having had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Listen to that. Remember those, the master's words in verse 33. Servant one was forgiven such a great debt. Should he not have had compassion on servant two, just as the master had had with him? Clearly, this man's character is not in step with his king's. Nor is it in, in step with 
the words of the king, Jesus, who's teaching this entire chapter about the conduct of people in his community. Clearly, we're seeing here, well, let me, before I get there, let's remember, why is Jesus telling this story? Again, we talked about how that question that Peter asked didn't seem, didn't seem right in the context. Well, now, if we're, just, if we're just looking at this passage and ignoring context, it's Jesus that seems out of place, right? This story doesn't seem to fit the question that Peter's asking, unless, unless Jesus is saying, and he is, that a heart that has to ask how many times is out of step with the gospel to begin with. Listen to the words of Matthew Henry as he wrote on this. He said, note, it does not look well for us to keep count of offenses done against us by our brethren. Why, that is, that is like the nicest way to put it, right? It does not look well for us. There is something of ill nature in scoring up the injuries we forgive as if we would allow ourselves to be revenged when the measure is full. God keeps an account, but he is the judge and the vengeance is his. But we must not, lest we be found stepping into his throne. It is necessary to the preservation of peace, both within and without, to pass by injuries without reckoning how often, to forgive and forget. God multiplies his pardons and so should we. It intimates that we should make it our constant practice to forgive injuries and should accustom ourselves to it till it becomes habitual, until it becomes our normal operating mode in life, friends. Have you thought about it that way? That God himself is the judge, that vengeance is his? Brother, sister, have you been trying to step into God's throne over unwillingness to forgive a brother or sister? Then please, if that's you this morning, hear the love of Christ for you. Because, and let me just remind you that all of scripture is a love letter to you from the king of the universe. All of scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17 says, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need this. And we need hard teaching that requires us to make very hard decisions. And in this, we see the love of Christ for his people. So hear this warning from the king at the end of our passage and hear it in the tone of love that Christ intends it to have. Matthew 18, 35. So my heavenly father will also, will do, also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Pastor Justin, are you telling me I could lose my salvation because I don't forgive my brother? No. Why? Because this is not an allegory where everything has to have a one-to-one -one relationship with reality. This is a parable. This is a parable. And a parable has a much looser relationship with, with the, 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 sub, uh, the substance that, of which it's pointing to. 
And so the key in this is that servant number one's character is totally out of step with Jesus. It's totally out of step with the gospel, totally out of step with the kings, which reveals him to be a wicked servant, which is what the king calls him, and means that he has no claim upon kingdom citizenship. He never was a kingdom citizen. He may have fooled people for a while, but that is over. He is not a member of the kingdom that Jesus has spent this entire chapter talking about. Because again, remember, what is the theme of this entire chapter? The conduct of the kingdom. What is the kingdom community like? And again, Jesus has been teaching all of this so that he could show us then, friends, that and warn us that whether it's the first time or the 491st time, that being unwilling to forgive your brother, your sister in Christ is a sin. It's a sin that Jesus bled and died for. And it's a sin that must be repented of. We cannot be a church that is unwilling to forgive one another. We must be a church full of people who love Christ because of his greatness, of his grace toward us, and therefore we forgive. We must repent of the sin trusting that Jesus, as we talked about a couple of sermon series ago, that Jesus himself is better, that he is more satisfying to our souls than the revenge that we want so desperately against that person. We must trust then that Jesus is the true and better judge and that he will make all things right in the day that he returns. And when he returns, friend, that brother that sinned against you that you don't want to forgive, he or she is going to be shown to be one of two things. One, they're going to be shown to be a true brother, a true member of this kingdom. Meaning that that sin that you suffered at their hands, Jesus bled and died for on the cross. He bore God's punishment for that sin upon the cross. And in that day, then we can, and knowing that not just that he bled and died for that sin that was done against me, but for all the many more sins that I've committed. And to that end, when I see that my brother has been shown to be in Christ, not because of their good works, but because of him who calls, amen? In that, then I will say, praise God for the greatness of his grace toward my brother. Or that one that claims to be a brother now will be shown to be a kingdom trespasser that he is in that day because he's never trusted in Jesus. And in that day, they will be sent away from the great white throne where the king, the judge of all will say, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they will carry the weight of God's punishment against their sin for all of eternity. And on that day, you know what we'll say? Praise God for his justice and his righteousness. But until that day, we pray for them. Until that day, we beg God for their repentance. We love them and we forgive them. We actively choose an act of the will from the heart that I will not choose to treat this person as if they owe a debt to me any longer. That is done. And church, it must be done in each one of us. There's so much that I would want to say in this. Um, 
until that day, we forgive. Not because they, we think they've done enough to make it right. Not because they've even repented. Not because we think they've suffered enough. But because Jesus has forgiven us so much more. And so therefore we forgive. We trust him because he's the judge. We trust him because he's working in us. Not just that he's our example, right? And this is, this is one of those things where the, the picture in the parable doesn't even begin to compare to the truth we have in Christ. Jesus isn't just our example in forgiving us. He's the one that's living and working in us, giving us the power and desire to forgive that person. He's giving us the ability and the desire to do it. And so if you're unwilling to forgive, then maybe it's because you're not trusting him to do so in you. Or maybe he's never forgiven you to begin with. Don't you or I dare think that we can make a better judge than Jesus can. Because newsflash, we can't. That line of thinking only leads to sorrow. That's what we call, that's what we call sin in our, in, our, in our house. We call it the path to sorrow, don't we, Hannah? So we have to ask that question. Are, is, this t- is this putting on us, us on a path toward sorrow or on a path toward joy? There's so much that I'd love to say on this, but J.C. Ryle, man, I love his writing. He says it so well here. So many objections that we could come up with at this point. So many, but what about, how about this and that kind of thing? I think he says it really well here where he says, the rule here laid down must be interpreted with sober-minded qualification. Our Lord does not mean that offenses against the law of the land or the good of society, good order of society, are to be passed over in silence. If somebody's breaking the law or someone is, is being, being harmed, we call the police. That's what we do. We work on the heart, yes, but if there's a law that's being broken, then we turn them in. He does not mean that we are to allow people to commit thefts and assaults with impunity. All that he means is that we are to exercise a general spirit of mercy and forgiveness toward our brethren. We are to bear much and put up with much rather than quarrel. We are to to look over much and to submit to much rather than have any strife. We are to lay aside everything like malice, strife, revenge, and retaliation. Such feelings are only fit for heathen. They are utterly unworthy of a disciple of Christ. I can't put it any more strongly than that. And and here's where the warning sounds loving, friends. The, The longer that we hold on to bitterness and an unwillingness to forgive, the less reason we have for assurance that we're in Christ. Could it be that you don't want to forgive that person because you've never been forgiven? And to that I say, Christ stands ready to all, to forgive all, to welcome all into the kingdom who will humble themselves like a child back in verse one and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a lot more that I could say there. But I think that's a good place for us to stop. And so I would love to just remind us of this. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Cody, if you could bring that up for me. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says this. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, 
even as God in Christ forgave you. We've been forgiven so much, friends. We cannot afford to not forgive one another. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. This is not an easy teaching. And yet, Lord, you intend it for our good. And so, Lord, may it be that as we consider what your word is saying to us, may we be Christians who repent of this sin of not forgiving. And not just in general, Lord, help us to get specific. Help us to point out, reveal to us relationships in which we are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. Lord, that we would not hope in ourselves and our ability to make that person pay. Or even just to steer clear of that person. But Father, to love them with the love of Christ that you so readily give us. And may we forgive. Lord, as we sing this song about your amazing grace toward us, may we not be able to sing it, yet also harboring unforgiveness toward a brother or sister. Help us to make it right and to make it right today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.